0: Politics Uncensored with Ali Milani on FUBAR Radio.
1: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another edition of Politics Uncensored. I am Ali Milani here with you to talk about all things politics um, in Westminster, in local government and beyond. And we've got a big, big show planned for you today. Uh, we're going to talk mostly about local government. And let me put my hands up. I know I served four years um, as a diligent councillor. Uh, in the Heathrow Villages and Hillingdon Council. The story, I have to admit, before we start the show today, that the story around local government has kind of passed me by, um, given all the crisis points that we have had in our politics uh, over the last 12 months, that when uh, our wonderful producers pitched to me the idea of doing today's show on local government, I was hesitant because, and I think my quote was, I don't know quite how sexy local government can be. Uh, I, I'm being told that I was, said it was boring. But in the preparations for today's show, uh, I've actually been... My mind has been thoroughly changed, not only in that it's not boring and that it can be very sexy. Uh, local government is sexy. is sure to be a T-shirt for councillors to wear all around the country. But also, there, there's a little bit of a quiet scandal going on um, with local government and funding, with many local governments fearing that they will face bankruptcy in the next year and we're going to explore why that is and what that might mean for folks but before we do that we are going into the week unwrapped and that is the part of the show where we talk about the headline news over the last week we look at some of the key issues coming out of Westminster and joining me today uh again on the show a uh, repeat guest is Femi Olawali, activist writer and co-founder of Our Future Our Choice Femi thank you so much for joining me. Uh you're looking great. Not How are things?
2: Bad. Not too bad, not about yourself.
1: Yeah, keeping well man. Listen, before we get into some of the some of the key points, I just wanna talk Brexit. I can't have you here and not talk Brexit. Uh, I saw one of your tweets um, that, that really struck out at me, and that is around uh, Andrea Leadsom, a Vote Leave committee member, <laughs> who has, in an interview, admitted that we all knew Brexit would damage our food supplies, and she has supposedly said, this is the price you pay for Brexit. Now, I'm I'm one of the people, as you are, that's old enough to remember the, the Vote Leave campaign, and I don't remember them saying this to us before the referendum.
2: Yeah, so the entire narrative was that we're sending too much money to the EU, and therefore, if we stop, if we leave the EU, we'll be able to save all that money. That's why they had the bus that said we'd get 350 million pounds a week extra for the NHS if we left the EU. And they were t- specifically tapping into the fact that they knew the entire country was econ- had been economically starved by austerity for the last six years. They knew that people were desperate to be richer, and so they know that they knew that nobody would ever vote to be poor, not intentionally. So the idea that um, they're saying, "Oh no, but we all knew it would be like this," when they accused anybody that suggested we be poor of project fear is the highest level of gaslighting imaginable.
1: I was just going to say that are they just gaslighting us now because it seems drip by drip every member of this vote leave campaign um from the most high profile to the lower profile ones are now saying to us the things that have made us poorer these economic sanctions that we've placed on ourselves well this is the price that you pay for sovereignty and we all knew this going into the ele- going into the referendum and that is absolutely not the case. This, In fact, it was it was fervently rejected by them in the lead up to the campaign. I remember, you know, the arguments around the economy was called Project Fear. And this is exactly what they did to Scotland. This is exactly what they do in general election campaigns. And, and, and none of this was true. And now they're gaslighting us saying, no, we said it all along, but it's a price we're willing to pay.
2: So what she was talking about specifically was the um, the new checks that are coming in, the trade barriers that Brexit is creating, which is the main way that Brexit is making us poor, because we're an island, we need stuff from the mainland. And um, she was saying that uh, we always said that th- there would be extra friction, that there would be checks, that there would be barriers. Now, in 2016, this is a direct quote from Boris Johnson. Well, all those who say that there would be barriers to trading with, with Europe if we were to do a Brexit. Do they seriously believe that Germany will put up tariffs of any kind? It's totally and utterly absurd. Um,
1: That's a a great Boris Johnson. You've got to give me a trigger warning for that, though, man. (laughs) I put (laughs) that part of my life behind me.
2: That's
1: a good Boris Um, Johnson.
2: Thank you. Um, So they they, they were blunt about it. They said there was no way there would be any trade barriers, and now we've got trade barriers. Worse still, to come from Andrea Leadsom... because she was part of that campaign. She was part of the campaign that was saying that there would be no economic damage. Um, and yet we knew we now we know that she was lying when she was saying that because in two thousand and thirteen, she said, "I'm going to nail my colors to the mast." Um I, I, I don't think we should leave the EU. It would be a complete disaster, not at a time when the tectonic plates of global geopolitics are shifting. She knew that it would make us poorer, and she'd known for years. And yet she chose to support Brexit because it landed her a government job. This is what these people are.
1: And I just want to lastly touch on this. I did not want to spend too much time on Brexit, but um, it seems to me like um, some of the groundswell is shifting on Brexit, and I think there is now a strong majority uh, of what would have been Remainers now across the country. But um, it's not really reflected in Westminster. I think there seems to be a sort of paralysis or a fear of talking about rejoin um, in Westminster. How long do you think before any senior politician has the courage to utter the words, rejoin in Westminster? Or do you think it's gone for a generation?
2: No, so it, it's, it's it's something that's going to happen in stages. The first stage is the single market, basically getting us economically back into the EU before we officially join. And the reason why that's going to happen is because once the Tories are gone, once you get a Labour government in, they're going to be looking at a population that has been, like I say, financially starved for 14 years with the pain of Brexit, the pain of their mismanagement. Um, and they're gonna to want to make things better in order to stay in power. And the best, the biggest lever that they can pull is reversing Brexit, because it's taking 4% of our economy, it's taking 1,000 pounds from every household in the country. That's the biggest lever they can pull, and they can do that, they can, without officially rejoining the EU, they can fix the economic problems by getting rid of those trade barriers. You do that by making sure that the rules on either side of the border are the same, so you don't need to check stuff. And that means essentially following the rules of the EU. Uh, aligning UK rules to EU rules. Now, that's that can be done through a series of agreements with the EU. It'll probably involve agreeing to free movement of people, etc. But this is the sort of thing that you have to do when, in order to get the trade, get the trade flowing. Uh, the next stage of that will be: well, we're now following the rules of the EU. But the only difference between now and before Brexit is that we no longer get a seat at the table in deciding what those rules actually are. And so you'll then get people saying, "Well, we've managed to save ourselves financially." but we want to at least steer this ship a little bit. And the only way you do that is by having a seat at the table, which means rejoining. So I reckon we'll be back in the single market fixing the economic problems within the next few years, but actually officially rejoining will involve a negotiation which might take 10.
1: And I think think that paradigm is likely to shift once, if the polls are correct, we get a Labour government. But shifting from uh, Andrea Leadsom to Lawrence Fox, um, a a very difficult shift. Uh, (laughs) Yes, certainly, and he's had a very tough week. Um, Thoughts and prayers, Lawrence. I hope you're doing all right, man. Um, Lawrence Fox has lost a high court libel case with two people he called pedophiles on social media. The actor turned politician was sued by former Stonewall trustee Simon Blake and drag artist Crystal. In an exchange on X, formerly Twitter, about a decision by Sainsbury's to mark Black History Month, Mr. Fox referred to the two as pedophiles. High court judge mrs justice collins rice said mr fox labeling mr fox's labeling was harmful defamatory, and baseless she said he did not attempt to show the court that these allegations were true and that the law affords few defenses to defamation of this sort in his written evidence for the case uh, in in his written in the written, i'm going to start that again in the written evidence for the case crystal a former rupaul's dragpole race contestant and whose real name is Colin Seymour said he had faced overwhelming distressing abuse after Mr. Fox's tweets Uh, ignoring my incredible difficulty getting through that paragraph uh, what's your response to this whole Lawrence Fox saga uh, and his defeat in court yesterday
2: like I say what a guy like imagine you've been accused of being racist uh, by people who you call pedophiles they take you to court um, to sue you for defamation of character, you sue by saying, no, but they called me racist. They can't do that. And while the judge is deciding whether or not to allow to say that these people calling you racist was something that they're not legally allowed to do, your way of proving to the judge that it's unreasonable to call you racist is to say the N-word in open court and to do the hacker. Like, the man is beyond unhinged
1: there's something not right right like i'm i, I look I'm, neither of us are psychoanalysts but he has really gone off the deep end to the point where you know not only his whole political ambitions and i think coming like 16th or something in the london mayoral race but he is now responding to racism cases like you said saying the n-word in open court and i think nicola thorpe has been uh, on a different podcast um this week friend of the show who's been on the show before talking about him doing the hacker in open court what is going on here
2: yeah the, the man is it's like i don't i don't know why he'd do this because he's one of those people who yes he was on the right yes he was even on the fringe of the right but he was one of those people who your conservative granddad or uncle might occasionally say, but he makes a few good points. He's, he, he's, he's kind of sensible on this. I don't listen to all this stuff, but at least he's kind of sensible. But now he's gone full Alex Jones. It's it's off the deep end. And so even the people on the right who might have occasionally listened to a couple of things that he say, he's lost them now.
1: Do you, th- do you think he represents... Uh maybe a, a very small section of the population uh, but one that exists nonetheless that look at some of the shifts in our culture and our society things that were inappropriate in the past but acceptable in in public discourse are now being called out and are no longer acceptable things like you know post me too movement post black lives matter society is much more stringent on issues of racism and sexism and we're nowhere near where we need to be but obviously things have changed over the last decade and do you think he's part of an older generation that that just refuses to 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 accept that you know his privilege which was once protected ironclad protection just is no longer so
2: Yeah, I very much see people like Lawrence Fox and Andrew Tate as the dying gasp, the death screams of an ideology that's about to become extinct. Like, there has been a generational shift. Um, Like The Times did some research on this and they found that at the age of 35, boomers, Gen X and the silent generation were five points less conservative than the national average, so they were more left wing. But by the age of 70, there are five points more conservative. So that's the traditional idea that you get more conservative as you get older. However, with with millennials, so people around my age, by the age of 35, on average, we're 15 points less conservative than the national average, which means that we have actually seen a generational shift. And you can see that in the way that um, for us growing up, we've actually become more liberal, more left-wing, more progressive as we've aged yeah. because like you think of the stuff that we used to laugh at and find okay in the in the 2000s that yeah. just completely we well, look back and
1: cringe. Yeah, the cycle's definitely broken, but I also think part of it is this idea that the older you get the more conservative you get has has largely been broken in 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 a social setting, but also there's nothing to conserve. Like our generation doesn't have houses or the yep. the income or the security that past generations had where when you do get older and you do get those assets and that security that you want to conserve it, we don't have it. So what's there to conserve and why become a conservative?
2: Exactly. And, and as far as setting an example, because a lot of the reason why people get more conservatives as they get older, is because they look up at their relatives and they think, oh, but you're the ones who make the sensible decisions in politics. Someday I'll, I would like to be like you. But if we look up at the people that voted for Brexit, voted for Trump, uh, there's yeah. nothing to be um, to look up to in, in that in that sense. And so questions like um, equality that used to be up for debate um, up until about uh, maybe 10 years ago now. Um, if you aren't pro-equality, just get off the board. And that's why you've got this um, complaint about cancel culture, because we can see if you actually care about equality or not. If you don't, bye.
1: Yeah, and I think, look, the problem is, I think you interestingly described it as this sort of screeching, screaming, being dragged, almost kicking and screaming part of an of an older time that is, is struggling with the change in in society and culture. A little bit of that backlash we're seeing in Westminster with... Uh, what is definitely a more reactionary, far-right politics in certain sections um, of Westminster, and I wonder if they're going to die out or if they're going to increase in voice, certainly in the next um, 12 months. But I want to leave Lawrence Fox and Andrea Letson and the like in the rearview mirror uh, and focus on something more substantive, and that's our next story, um, which is that Britain will consider recognizing a Palestinian state as part of a concerted effort to bring about irreversible an irreversible peace settlement the foreign secretary lord david cameron has said in what would be a landmark diplomatic moment he said the move would help to bring about a two state solution currently facing trenchant opposition from israeli prime minister benjamin netanyahu now it's important to note here that in the past the policy from this government has been palestine will only be recognized as part of uh, peace negotiations and peace settlements and would not be unilaterally recognized Uh, the position of the Labour Party in the past had been unilateral recognition of Palestine but that seems to have changed uh, with the Keir Starmer administration and it was reported in the Jewish Chronicle that Keir Starmer had reversed that policy and would also be moving towards um, only recognizing Palestine uh, as part of a peace settlement. Uh, Femi, I want to get your thoughts on this. This would be a huge landmark moment for Britain to unilaterally recognize Palestine, not as part of some future negotiations, but here and now. What's your reaction to uh, the the comments from the Foreign Secretary, uh, David Cameron?
2: i'd say that we're talking about the absolute bare minimum like obviously david cameron is a horrendous human being whose middle east policies include selling weapons to saudi arabia which he knew were being used to bomb hospitals and schools in yemen and caught call- and then visiting the factories that sell those weapons and calling it excellent so this is this is not a a good guy in, in terms of middle east affairs but this right here is the bare minimum we are talking about recognizing the right of the people of Palestine to self-determination, one of the most basic fundamentals of international law. So, absolutely, a hundred percent, percent support this, and we should be calling for a ceasefire. We should, we should, we, we've got David, we've got Rishi Sunak saying things like, we support a sustainable ceasefire, but under X, Y, Z um, uh, conditions. All those conditions are basically on the Hamas side. There's nothing he expects of um, the Israeli government, which is the real problem here, because that is. The root cause of this, the fact that the Palestinian people's rights have been suppressed op- um, for for decades. At this point, um, we need the return. We need the, the the free the freedom the freeing of the Palestinian prisoners. We need the uh, end of the blockade of, of Gaza. We need the um, the uh, end of the apartheid state in in the West Bank. We need a whole bunch of things that have been re- fully recognized by major human rights organizations such as Amnesty International, Human Rights Watch and the united nations i mean
1: even now the international court of justice has said there's a plausible case uh to be heard um particularly over what's happened uh most most recently um what's really key here and i think what's important for people to understand is that it has always been policy of both parties to have a two-state solution um but only one state has been has been recognized by by the government of the day And it seems to me now that this, what would be a real landmark diplomatic moment from David Cameron, is a response to the fervent extremism coming out of the Netanyahu government and the Israeli government, who are now boasting openly, as 26,000 people have been been killed, 10,000 of whom are children, They are boasting opposition to a two-state solution, boasting opposition to the creation of a Palestinian state at any point in the future. The UK ambassador, the Israeli ambassador to the UK, uh, has been openly anti-two-state solution. So it seems like, you know, like you said, David Cameron's not a good guy and hasn't, hasn't proven himself to be so in the Middle East. But it seems like they've been pushed this way by Netanyahu.
2: Yeah, I mean, it just... It's hard to it's hard to um, sell yourselves as a part as a good as good people if you're standing shoulder to shoulder with people that the United Nations main court is saying are committing genocide. Like the the more extreme the Netanyahu regime gets, the harder it is for Rishi Sunak and the Tories to stand beside them and pretend as if they're being reasonable. Yeah. I mean you've got the what was it, President Isaac Herzog who a couple of months ago and this was used in the uh, in the ICJ case, he said this idea that that uh, the Palestinian citizens were not involved and not responsible. I, I I don't believe it. So he was fully implicating all Palestinian people in the attack committed by. Um, yeah, and, uh, Hamas on the and and of October.
1: and and we will be keeping an eye on this story and covering it in the weeks to come. Lastly, Femi, before I let you go, I just want to I want to um, touch uh, the topic, the theme of the show, as we've got our other guests joining us, and that is that council services will be at risk if the government doesn't step in to fix the four billion pound hole in local authority finances. MPs have warned the Leveling Up, Housing, and Communities committee have released a report into financial distress into the organizations saying that there are systematic underfunding of local councils in england the cross-party group called on the government to reform councils um, to councils in england Um, this is a huge issue and it seems like uh, councils across the country are being left to fend for themselves after a decade of underfunding and now we're seeing councils at real risk of going bankrupt uh what do you make of this and i specifically want to ask you as well there is allegations of conservative targeting of labor and liberal democrat councils as well so i wonder if you could respond to both
2: so in terms of the general underfunding just go on the site called uh, they work for you you can look up the voting records of every mp in parliament and if you look at the conservative ones, if you look at the section called on the, under the cons- constitutional section, you'll see that they've voted consistently to lower the funding to to local government. So they have been doing this deliberately for, the, for as long as they've been in power. As for the targeting, well, Rishi Sunak came out and admitted that bluntly in summer 2022. He said um, when he came into power, um, the Labour had changed the funding formulas to put all the money into deprived urban areas and he began the work of of changing that. So he's literally said, I took money away from the poorest urban areas, which tend to be ones that tend to vote labor. So this is a deliberate attempt to defund especially those areas where um, they tend to vote Labour.
1: Amazing. Thank you. That's activist, writer, and co-founder of Our Future, Our Choice, Femi Olawali. Thank you so much, Femi, for joining us. Always a pleasure to have you on the show and your insightful uh, views into the the, the issues uh, of the day. We're going to continue on this topic of local councils as they've been dominating the news recently and it has emerged that nearly one in six Local councils fear they will be bankrupt uh, in the next year. The six councils include Slough, Croydon, Thorock, Woking, Birmingham City, Nottingham City, and this could become a more frequent occurrence. The Leveling Up Committee has released a report into this topic saying there is systematic underfunding of local councils in England, and the next government needs to reform council tax and overhaul the wider funding system for local authorities to ensure council finances are put on sustainable footing in addition to this the government have also announced making plans to increase council tax by a hundred pounds in order to raise money ahead of the general election this year however this has come under serious criticism due to it being accused to be hitting the poorest the hardest joining me now is richard murphy professor of accounting practice at sheffield university management school richard thank you so much for joining us i just wonder if we can touch on this topic. Uh, more broadly and whether you can give us a little bit of your expertise on what is going on in local councils and why we are now in, in a serious sort of crisis point in terms of funding and bankruptcy with local councils.
0: Look, the background to this is that there has been a crisis going on for a long time in local councils. Governments have gradually defunded them, starting effectively with Margaret Thatcher back in 1980, when she realised that local authorities were at the time able to raise their own borrowing, fund their own investments. Do very much their own thing, and she hated that because it meant that she wasn't in control of monetary policy in the way that she wished for. And she removed from those local authorities that right to invest the way they wanted and to borrow as they would have done, and did before that date. Got to remember how. Important local authorities were in the development of social infrastructure in the UK, schools, houses, transport, electricity, gas, water, some aspects of health. All of these things were under local authority control at one time and were fundamentally uh, provided by them. What's happened is that over time, all those powers have gradually been reduced and funding has been reduced. And that's been a theme right through the austerity years since 2010. It was so easy. Osborne to say, oh, I'm not making cuts, I'm just reducing the funding to local authorities, and of course, force them to make the cuts instead. And so we have seen enormous cuts to the funding of local authorities, 25% or more plus in real terms, in many of those cases, sometimes higher, with the impact on libraries and education and social care in particular, and um, the support for those in need in the community. So there has been a massive range of cuts to the point where it's just now not possible to make further cuts. Simply, you There's cannot left actually to meet the statutory obligations of councils anymore to meet their need to provide emergency housing, to provide social care, to provide childcare services with the resources that are left available to them. And that's why councils are now at the point where they say, well, we cannot balance our books anymore. So, so
1: is what I'm hearing that this isn't a crisis that is born out of one or two decisions in the last... 48 months, for example, this is we have been slow walking ourselves here for decades and we just happen to be at the end of the story now where there's nothing left to be cut.
0: Yeah, that's basically it. We really are at the point where there's been a slow process of grinding down the delivery of local government in the UK to the point where it basically does no longer function. And that's part of an overall, and I'll be blunt about this, neoliberal theme of undermining the processes of government to the point where they don't function, where we all shrug our shoulders and say, oh, well, let's move on without them. That's what they want to happen. Um, Here, the cost of that process is going to be enormous. So it isn't an accident that we've got to this point. It's been very deliberate, um, and it's gone on for more than 40 years. It's just that over the last few years, the demand for those services has become so acute. And we're aware of so much more demand because of the publicity given to things like child abuse cases. And also there's a higher degree of migration um, and therefore a greater uh, need for provision of emergency housing and so on than there has ever been before. And Uh, that's what's created the immediate crisis. But it's part of a long term process. And I wonder if you could explain
1: to to listeners, because I, I mean, to be honest, Local government isn't widely understood among, uh, amongst the population. It, it, it can sometimes seem a little bit complex and um, and uh, difficult to understand because we, we all understand when it's central government doing something, but then when we hear about local government, I think there can be an element of confusion. Um, what would happen... If councils went bankrupt so what we're hearing is that six councils could go bankrupt in the next year including Slough, Croydon, Thurrock, Woking, Birmingham City. Not- no, they Nottingham have City. All,
0: those ones have already gone bankrupt.
1: Oh these have already gone bankrupt?
0: Yeah. Okay what happens? What happens and look it does depend on what type of council we're talking about and there are so many different types of council in the UK. There are the mayors, there's the unitary authorities, which tend to run large cities. There's the county councils, which tend to run the shires. You know, I happen to live in Cambridge here, um, but we've got a mayor as well. There's the local councils who tend to run some of the more <laughs> planning and housing issues. And then we even have parish councils, of course. So which council is going bust makes a difference because it does vary what services are prejudiced. The ones who are by and large going bust are the ones who are supplying either social care or housing or both uh, because that is where the greatest demand is but what they are then told is that first of all they can commit to no new spending so any plans they had might go and they've also got to cut the budget to try to balance the books around the emergency services so what then goes leisure libraries parks so they just switch all all of this off they just have to switch all that stuff off, basically, and then they begin, have to begin to sell those assets that support those things off. So suddenly we find they're trying to sell parks or they're trying to sell leisure centres um, or they are closing down the libraries um, and then finding how they can be redeveloped to raise money. So one of the consequences of this is we're going to see potentially massive privatisation of public assets, which are owned by local authorities. Uh, it's really quite worrying I, Richard, as well.
1: If, if, I, if I may, because I just want to be really clear with our listeners on this because I think they, it's really important folks understand this. So what we're hearing is there's a real possibility with the bankruptcy of these councils and many others that might come with them, that they will be forced to sell parks, libraries and other key assets that are of the community and for the community to the private sector as a result of Decades of underfunding of local government from central government.
0: Yeah, indeed, and other things like allotments, which for a lot of people are really important—not um, you know just to help make the family budget balance, because some people do use them for that—but also for leisure, for mental health, and everything else. These councils are going to be forced down to doing the absolutely minimum that they can yeah. do. Their so it's not
1: inconsequential this 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 issue. There are serious consequences.
0: Oh, I think there are massive consequences. First of all, by removing a whole tier of democracy which has been so important to the development of social infrastructure in the UK in the past, and local accountability, which also reflects the different needs of people and prejudices and preferences of people around the Mm -hmm. country. Because, you know, we do have different priorities in different parts of the country and we do also understand how to supply things in different ways in different parts of the country. All of that will be lost. But just as importantly, all these essential services, which still seem to me to be so important. Yeah. You know, people say, well, I don't borrow books anymore. Yeah, but there are lots of people who do need that space, whether it's just to be warm or to work, because there's nowhere else for them to work, or to get information or to access the computer because they haven't got broadband of their own, and that's where they access social services from, and so on. All of those things fundamental to the social infrastructure of the UK, which are apparently are dispensable now, and I don't believe are.
1: Yeah, and I, I so one of the things I want to touch there's two key areas that I want to touch before before I let you go because it's been fascinating um, to 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 hear you explain it, and that's the issue of social care. You just you you mentioned it uh, as you were speaking earlier. Um, I spoke to a, a friend of mine who works in local authority who is a cabinet member um, of a local authority, and they told me that their budget alone, around sixty to sixty six percent, I think, of their budget goes to social care. That's two thirds yeah. of their budget going to social yeah. care. Can you explain what that means?
0: Social care is, look, there's two forms of social care. There's adult social care and there's children's social care. And they have different priorities. Children's social care is obviously supporting children who are vulnerable and monitoring whether they are literally in need of being removed from parental care because that is incredibly important, as we now know, and you probably didn't appreciate even 10 or 15 years ago, Um, to the uh, extent to which children are vulnerable. That's one type of social care which involves a lot of social work and monitoring. The other type of social care, which tends to be more general, and lots of families benefit from this. I mean, my family has, um, extended family, has very definitely benefited from this elderly, vulnerable, infirm, ill people, very often after they've come out of hospital. So people think, oh, this will never happen to me. Oh, yes, it does. Um, You come out of hospital, you can't manage yourself for the time being. You need support. You need Meals on Wheels. You need somebody to come and actually help you to get out of bed, bathe, go to the loo, whatever it might be, all those things. That's social care. Hands-on help for those who aren't in hospital, aren't in a home but do need help to manage the day-to-day things that literally are essential to keep them in in their home and And this
1: service and this service is being provided for by the council because i think most folk will be listening going hang on why isn't the nhs providing that it's it's the council provided by
0: councils this is a council provided service and where do they go do they go outsource services
1: and they go to the private
0: market well, these services disappear if councils don't pay for them. As simple as that. No. So what I'm asking is, people... so
1: if if I'm a, if I'm a resident who needs social care and I go to the council, they're not going back to the NHS to provide that service, are they? They are going to the private market.
0: Well, if if oh, that's the only other place to get it, I if mean, to... so the contractors supply a lot of these services, but they're paid for by the council, and if the council can no longer pay for it then people aren't going to get it now that's already happened to a very large degree vast numbers of people who used to get social care don't now qualify the amount of restrictions put in place is enormous but there are really lots of vulnerable people who help this they're mainly elderly but they're not only elderly and do this and the assumption is that well families will provide but sometimes the family isn't nearby you know you can't go and help your mum if your mum is fifty miles away and you can't get there every day, it's as simple as that. They need someone to help them, and that is the problem that we have now. And if those people aren't helped, where else do they go? Or do they live in squalor or despair, or what? I don't know. Countless, and so, if and they so can't am help, I hearing? Leave us in dire situations,
1: Richard? Am I, am I hearing so because it has become so expensive and the finances have become so tight that there has been a strictening or a tightening of. The eligibility criteria, so less people are able to get it and therefore more people who should be getting social care are not receiving it because of the underfunding and because of
0: of the financial pressures on local authorities. Yeah, that is the case, and it's one of the reasons why the government keeps on saying, "Why are there so many people not at work?" <laughs> yeah. um, well, one of the reasons why there are so many people not at work in the UK they are people in their very often in their fifties, forties, fifties who are caring for an elderly relative, and they can't go to work in the way that they used to because they actually now got a care commitment. It tends to, of course, impact women more, and that's the way our society is structured. And it may not be appropriate, but I make the point. It often does. It can affect men as well. And the point is that we are seeing people being forced into becoming carers with paid abittance, which is what the care allowance now is, Mm. to substitute for uh, local authority social care at an enormous cost to our society in terms of detriment to the carer as well as the person who is being cared for. And so we are losing out everywhere as the consequence of these cuts is dire.
1: So can I ask you, Richard, I want your opinion on this. Would it not make more sense to, to, to place the service and the, 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 the burden of cost on the service onto the NHS and simply have the councils administer it, administer it given that they know the local, their local residents better, rather than placing the financial duty on the councils? Because it looks like pretty much it's one of the fundamental reasons why they're being bankrupted. Why doesn't it just fall on the NHS to
0: pay for? Well, that's fine. We could do that if only we actually give the money that is required to the NHS to then spend with the council to yeah. administer. It. Funnily enough, that's I where mean, so that's where I was going. It's moving the pocket you're taking it out of. Yeah. There. You know. Let's be clear. you That's the problem. No, no, no I
1: understand, I understand that the money would still need to be paid for, and that, this is where I was. I was hoping to get to. I. I didn't know if this was the case, but I mean, it, it feels like if that responsibility fell onto the NHS, then there would be far more political pressure on the government. To actually fill that gap. Whereas right now it seems that a little bit of a political abdication of duty, when it falls on the local councils and the local councils are having to tighten it and the local councils are having to pay for it, then a Conservative government can go, oh, well, bugger it. It's the local council in Birmingham that have fucked it up. Excuse yeah, me. Let French. me
0: make a, the other point that then becomes in or comes into play. And that is, of course, you're assuming there is an NHS. But there isn't an NHS, there are lots of trusts. So, which trust is going to pick up the bill for this social care? Is it the mental health trust or is it the part of the NHS that provides physical care? Um, who is going to pay for that? Is it out of the GP budget or is it out of the hospital budget because the hospital was the person who released them into the community where they now need care? Um, what about the person with what a doctor would call multiple comorbidities? I'm sorry, I'm married to a retired GP, so I know that <laughs> jargon phrase. Multiple comorbidities? The person who's got so many things wrong with them, you can you know, make a list as long as your arm and work out who's got to cover it. But they may well be covered by several trusts. Mm-hmm. Who's going to pay for it? We don't have integrated care in the UK. And that's another problem. Saying the NHS does this doesn't solve the problem when the NHS is itself splintered into so many right. subunits.
1: OK, so I, I guess what I'm hearing from you is that it, under the current you would you would need serious reform in the structure first if you're even going to think about it, moving it into out of local government into the NHS, I guess it would just make more sense to give the local government the money that they need to run it.
0: Well, what we actually need, let's be... The, the
1: fear I have, Richard, and let me just interrupt you, I, I want you to, to, to finish that thought, but the fear I have is that there is an element of the private market taking advantage of local councils, because if local councils only have one place to go if the NHS can't provide the service, and that's good to go to private providers, and they are legally obligated to provide the service to residents then providers can, you know, we know what providers are like. They they can they can charge whatever they like, but, within reason, but whatever they like, and then that ends up at massive cost to the local authority and to taxpayers and massive profit for shareholders.
0: But with the people actually providing the service on the ground, being paid minimum wage, exactly. ghastly zero-hours contracts, with incredibly tight expenses paid, even though they're required to provide their own cars and knows yeah. what else? So that's the only benefit I be see thinking...
1: of moving it into the NHS.
0: Well, we see, particularly at the moment with regard to childcare, where the private sector profits after childcare are enormous and even obscene. Um, And that's, you're quite right, one of the things that is happening. We are seeing exploitation. This is the private sector taking public revenues and using them for private gain yet again.
1: And uh, lastly, I want to. By the way, it's been fascinating to 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 hear you talk about this, and and I would love to have you on for longer because I think you're you're explaining it in such simple terms to people. You can invite me again, and, <laughs> and I definitely will. But I want to touch on this quickly, and um, that is, there seems to be the noise seems to be at least from government that the solution to this is council taxes is rising above the four point nine nine percent range. It's is that a solution? It's just put the cost on the residents.
0: Let's be clear. Council tax is an incredibly unfair tax. I'm writing something at the moment called the Taxing Wealth Report 2024 and looking at all taxes and how we can make them fair in the UK and council tax is deeply, deeply unfair. People on low incomes pay proportionately a very high amount of council tax compared to those on high incomes. The council tax is no solution to this because it is penalising the people who need most care in the community anyway.
1: Would it even raise enough is the other question.
0: Oh, look, the amounts in question that can be raised by council tax are relatively modest. Most council services are funded by central government grants. Councils are not funded in the main... By council taxes, um the government has tried to force that situation that they' are trying to push um all of funding into the council tax, but simply capital council tax can't raise enough, so councils are still heavily dependent on government grants to pretend all of this has got to be raised by increasing council tax, which is itself deeply unfair is just wrong
1: yeah, and lastly richard if i if I may I hopefully uh, you know uh, this is a, a fair question um given you know we have lots of 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 labor people uh that listen to this show and potentially the next government that could be coming in uh they might be listening and looking at this crisis in local government and going what the hell are we going to do um because uh you know as a member of the labor party and a former candidate and councillor, i can say one of the things that's not brimming right now is ideas what ideas would you give to an incoming labor party a potential incoming labor party about what they can do to to at least alleviate, if not fix, what seems to be a a, a quiet crisis um, in local government.
0: Look, local authorities are saying they need another four billion a year, and they've been given half a billion a year. That's one-eighth of what they require. That isn't a circle that you can square or whichever way around you want to do it. Um, there is a need for more money. I'm afraid to say Rachel Rees is going to have to find it. Um, There isn't a way in which local government is going to survive in the UK without extra cash. And if you can't do that through council tax, or you can't do it fairly through council tax, another thing that has to be done is an emergency review of how we fund local authorities, including a review of its taxation and its borrowing powers so that it can keep in place the Mm -hmm. essential services that we require. So, one, emergency grants, two, emergency review of taxation, three, an emergency review of how we actually can put in place better local authority managed services to deliver this at lower cost to society as a whole.
1: Well, we'll definitely have to get you back on once you've finished writing your your thoughts on, on, on taxation and particularly council taxes as well. Um, Stark to hear that, that local governments are only receiving one eighth um, of the four billion uh, that they need. But... We have just heard this week that Rachel Reeves uh, is not intending on putting further caps on bankers' bonuses. So, you know, all the priorities are in the right place for the incoming Labour government. (laughs) Richard, uh, thank you so much for joining us. That was Richard Murphy, Professor of Accounting Practice at Sheffield University Management School. Really, really interesting um, breakdown of the crisis uh, that is currently going on in local authorities. Joining me next is the leader of Somerset Council, Councillor Bill Revens, uh, a local authority leader who's going to talk to us a little bit about... About the individual uh, experiences within these councils, he's going to join me after this break.
3: Fubar Radio presents. Access all areas.
2: We have got the lovely Thomas Hartley from Married at First Sight UK joining us on Zoom. Thomas, any advice out of the three of us? You're the only one that's been married. Mm. <laughs> any marital advice for me and Stephen? Because we're still Don't looking for Mister Right. <laughs> Make sure they're really, really fit. <laughs> I'm really, really quiet and really, really well in town. <laughs> okay, so no, right. no chat, big Corey. And <laughs>
3: it's time to welcome into the studio the darkness. Do you have a favourite Easter egg if someone was to buy you an Easter egg? If I was the CEO of Cadbury's, I would make one out of a thousand Cadbury's Easter eggs. Cadbury's cream, one completely full and put a spoon t- in with it yeah like the gold so you could ticket. crack it like an actual or you could have like a tap oh, at the bottom right. yeah like on a beer barrel it'd be lovely if they had soldiers in the middle you know little toast soldiers in the middle of the easter egg so frank you said like a real egg like an ostrich egg with some toast on the side some toast uh, in the middle well, there you go. I'll get in touch with Cadbury's and see if we can get you a deal.
2: Politics uncensored.
3: We have a wonderful
1: guest, Clive Lewis MP, Labour MP for Norwich South, talking about this onward report that is finding that as people are getting older, they are not becoming more conservative, as had mm-hmm. been the case with previous generations. What's your inis- uh, initial reaction to that?
0: It doesn't come as a complete surprise
1: and a complete shock. Where they end up, though, I think is probably as interesting. And I think with the fragmentation of Kind of centre and left parties across Western democracy, but particularly here in the UK with our first past post system, that means that the Conservatives will still continue to get in more often than not, um, even with a declining
3: share of the vote. You're listening to Food Bar Radio. Food
1: Radio.
2: Food Bar Radio. Food Radio. Radio.
1: This. Oh, This is Ali Milani on Politics Uncensored at FUBAR Radio. I sounded so good there with the music. I think I could do a, a little LP. Um, we have been talking uh, about local government. Uh, and as I said at the top of the hour, uh, you know, this isn't an issue uh, going into today's show um, that, that I was really um, had a extremely high on on the political radar but as we've been hearing over the course of the show uh, and the uh, certainly the last couple of weeks around the issues in local government it is increasingly clear that there is a a crisis uh in local government uh funding um we've heard uh, of councils like slough croydon Thorrock, woking birmingham nottingham and northamptonshire uh who are in crisis at risk of bankruptcy and we've just heard they are uh, bankrupt and many more which May soon follow, and Richard Murphy, professor of, uh, at University of Sheffield, has just um, described to us uh, some of the issues underlying the crisis in local government and joining me now we have the leader of somerset council councillor bill uh councillor Revens, thank you so much for joining us we've been you so much for inviting me we've been talking today around uh the 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 issues of funding in local government um overall nationally i wonder if you can tell us a little bit about your council your personal experience of what we're hearing is a four billion pound hole in local government funding
3: yeah that's the that's the position across the country so what we are forecasting in Somerset Council is that next year we have a budget deficit of a hundred million pounds and we are we declared what we're calling a financial emergency um, in the autumn um, which and we've been working With government, we've taken the decision to be transparent about our funding situation because uh, we think it's an important issue across the country. And uh, we think more people should be talking about it. It affects uh, it affects everybody's local government does affects everybody's lives day to day. And if we are unable to fix the the emergency situation that's emerging in local councils, um, we will have significant issues across across the country we provide essential services for many of our residents many of them are statutory and uh, because we are seeing increasing demand for those statutory services um we are having to make very tough choices about those discretionary services that we really want to provide um which yeah. is looking like we're gonna have I wonder... to make some cuts too
1: so i wonder if if you can talk about why we've why, we, why we're here and why we've reached this position because look a a, a lot of the noises that i've heard out of westminster i now can clearly see are absolutely wrong and outrageous because often when when you have these financial emergency situations that you're declaring um politicians in Westminster accuse local authority leaders of having mismanaged their their local councils. The guest prior to you, Richard Murphy, was very clear that this is not a case of mismanagement and it's a case of decades of underfunding of local authorities and we were always going to get here. So can you give your personal experience as to why we've reached or why you've reached this £100 million um, deficit uh, and and better explain to our audiences why this is the case?
3: since 2009 since we've had austerity we've seen a 40 percent decrease in central government funding for councils Uh, that means that our funding is increasingly reliant on council tax Um, so council tax is a tax on property values based in 1991 Uh, we have seen increasing demand for both adults and children's social care and also demand around special educational needs and disabilities, and and transport as well. All of these are statutory services we have to provide. It is a broken model if you are trying to rely on a property tax on 1991 property values to pay for increasing demand on social care. Ultimately, there is a graph of doom. That means all councils that provide those services will, at some point, go bust. We are slightly nearer to the edge because the previous administration took a decision to freeze council tax here for six years. It's not because of mismanagement um, in the sense that um, that maybe what maybe some really poor decisions were taken. Uh, we're in a position where where we we are one of the first uh, councils that uh, at some point we will go under unless there is national government intervention it's a national problem it requires a national solution
1: and i wonder listen the, the, as i was putting this show together one of the accusations that i heard uh from councillors and cabinet members from around the country was that there is a if not a targeting but at least a hesitation of support to councils that are run by the labor party and by liberal Democrats. Um, and that it is of political benefit to central government to allow these councils uh, to either go under or to to highlight perceived mismanagement. As you have declared this 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 funding emergency, how have you found that? Is that to be, is that true? And have you found that government have been less than helpful?
3: Uh, we've had some interesting conversations with government. We've made various asks of them. Uh, some of have... Some I think will be accepted. Some, some will not. Um, whether councils of a different political colour are being particularly targeted, um, I would, I would say that there is, there is a recognition amongst council leaders of all parties that there is a long-term structural problem with local government. Um, so,
1: can and- I, can I just get? I just want, and I want to be really clear on this. Do you think your own opinion? Do you think? that Some of these conversations and some of these decisions may have been different if you had been a conservative council leader, if your jumper had been blue instead of yellow.
3: Um, yeah, and I'm trying, to, I'm, I'm trying to avoid the question. You're not so, going to be able to I on think, this show, I'm afraid. You, 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 you might be, um, you might be implying. Um, I just I'm, want your, I, no, no, I, just just your opinion. We'll definitely draw that conclusion. Um, so, I'm, not, I'm not content to go on the record with drawing that conclusion, I'll leave other people. to to make their own minds up
1: okay well i think i think that that speaks uh volumes i i i i want to hear from from you though because it's a very difficult position to be in and not one which has been as a result of your poor decisions but and I want to make that clear for everyone listening that you know it's not the responsibility of yourselves and your cabinet uh that you've ended up here. it is now your responsibility obviously to make these key decisions uh but but it's not your fault let's say that that, that we are where we are um how difficult has it been for you and your administration to to see out what is a national crisis
3: uh yeah it's it's incredibly tough no nobody got elected to make the decisions that we're we're looking to 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 make in the next uh next a few years that we will have to to create a sustainable council um so at the moment we're we're looking to close all our public toilets um uh, we're looking to reduce our support to uh, the culture and arts. Uh, we're looking to close our visitor centres. Our tourist economy is really important to us. We're closing household recycling centres. We're increasing all our charges for parking and harbours and cemeteries. Um, we're reducing highway maintenance. These are all things that we would totally, which go totally against the grain. We, people don't stand for the local council to cause harm to their community. And this is, what is
1: not what you want to be us? doing, but you have to do it's it because you're not being given the money.
3: Absolutely heartbreaking.
1: And, but you're you're having to do it for the council to survive.
3: It is it is our responsibility, and uh, we've we've just um, just I think yesterday published papers and um, informed our staff that we will we will have to make some tough choices about shrinking the organisation, and we're probably looking at around twenty to twenty five percent. But this doesn't have to.
1: But, but 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 Bill, if I if if I may, this doesn't have to be the case, does it? Because how frustrating must it be for you as a council leader who's going through the pain staking efforts of having to make decisions that you clearly I can see from your voice and, 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 and now you're speaking, you don't want to do but because of an underfunding of, of your local council, your local authority, you're having to do and meanwhile you look at some of the frivolous spending policy wise in Westminster, they're telling you we don't have 4 billion to spend on local authorities you're having to shut key services that are so important to people and yet they're obsessed with things like Rwanda, that's got to be frustrating
3: oh oh ma- massively and the fact that this isn't um a t- a topic that is on every party's political agenda and i'll include my own in that um i think is 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 frankly embarrassing we're seeing all over the country local services being depleted and it's not being talked about on the national national agenda and i've been trying to raise this and raise the profile of this issue so that I hope it can be addressed. You know Um yes, the Conservatives aren't addressing it, but I've not seen I've not seen Labour, Lib Dem Green, or Monster Raving Looney Party or whoever <laughs> um councillors talk like uh, um members of parliament talking about it. We've just it's gotta be a much more much bigger political issue. People are seeing local services being systematically dismantled mm-hmm. as part of this and everyone wants to kick the can down the road. Um, okay, so well,
1: let's 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 be optimistic. Um, what what should happen? I have just anointed you, Prime Minister Bill Revens, with ultimate power. King Prime Minister Bill Revens, you have ultimate political power now. If it was up to you, what would happen to, to fix this problem? Well, that's
3: uh, first of all, that's uh, that that would be a great honour, and I think the first thing I would do is resign immediately. <laughs> um, however, um, for me, you know, the, the, the easier and quicker solution is to recognise that adults and children's social care cannot be funded out of council tax. Um, we need a reform of the system of local government finance. Mm-hmm. So that it's that's 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 really interesting because we because
1: it's one of the topics that me and I don't know if you if you heard uh, the the previous segment of the show, but Richard Murphy, who is a professor at Sheffield University Management School, we had this conversation um, about ten minutes ago, and and one of the questions I asked him is, is: Does it not make more sense to move the funding model away from local authorities in terms of social care and back to the NHS? And simply have local authorities as the administrators of that, with the funding and the service coming from the NHS. Is that something that you see as as part of a solution?
3: Uh, yeah, that would be, that would be an option that I would love to explore with our NHS partners. Um, we've obviously got the experience within local government at the moment of delivering and commissioning social care. Um, we've started to work to a model of integrated care partnerships where we're working closer with the with the NHS, but we're running out of road here. Um, local government is in a financial crisis, and we're not going to be able to significantly land that model by the time uh, local government runs out. So we've—we it's got to be a national, an, a national solution, mm-hmm. and we just can't continue with with trying to pretend that we can fund social care out of a property tax based on 1991 values. Some, um, yeah. Uh, yeah, all go- governments of all of all colours have, have have failed to grasp this nettle.
1: And, and look, we're, we're headed towards a general election. And um, if I have anything to do with it, this is certainly an issue that I think we're going to try and raise as much as we can. Let's assume the party leaders are listening to this show at Kirstarma Rishi Listen, I know Rishi Sunak doesn't go to sleep at all without listening to Smooth Radio with Ali Milani. So let's assume he's listening. What is maybe one or two things that you would call for them to stick in their manifesto to fix um, this crisis ahead of a general
3: election? Um, commit to a review of local government f- of finance and commit to a review of how we run social care in this country and yeah you know, if, if i just add it it needs to be an all-party consensus um um norman lamb when he was minister for, for health and social care was calling for that sort of consensus to come around it and then we had the debacle of um the dementia tax that's in the in in the uh, Theresa May election um because we you know, somebody drew up a policy on the back of a fag packet we need we need to get all parties and the experts into a room to design a system that actually is sustainable and works um we we otherwise we're just going to see the collapse of local government um at some point in the next few years
1: thank you so much that was leader of somerset council councillor bill revens good luck to you bill uh, over the coming weeks uh, and months uh, as we as we move forward in this uh crisis uh it's been really interesting, at least for me. I hope uh, you listening has have also learnt um, a lot. I think it's astounding that an issue that is so clearly at the forefront um, of the everyday services that people are receiving um, hasn't faced far more political and media scrutiny um, and more attention. Uh, I think what was clear in what both Bill and Richard have had to say is that, this isn't an inconsequential crisis it's not like councils going under are suddenly going to be saved um, by local Um that doesn't seem to be the case and what we could potentially be looking at here is parks libraries essential services housing social care key critical components of everyday life for so many people in local authorities Around the country could be cut and sold off. Our communities could be decimated through a mass privatization um, of 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 these centres. Just imagine your parks disappear, your libraries disappear, the services that the council provides your children could all disappear as a result of decade long underfunding and a four billion pound hole that the government is just refusing to fill within local authorities. And what is their solution? It's not to cut ridiculous policy like rwanda where we're spending hundreds of millions of pounds to stick a couple of the most vulnerable people in our society on a plane to rwanda as a way to posture of how f- how tough we are as it come to Im- as it comes to immigration uh or, or ridiculous ridiculous policies all uh, uh across the board but rather the solution, the magic solution, is to hit the poorest the hardest once again, and that's to increase council tax as a way to, to generate the revenue to pay for this shortfall. And if, if, if Richard is to believe, if, if Council of is to be believed, then even that will not be a solution. Four billion pound black hole in local authorities around the country and a government sitting on their hands. Thank you so much. I want to thank all of our guests for joining us in what has been... A hugely informative show, our returning guest, Femi Ali Awali, uh, who's an activist, writer and co-founder of Our Future, Our Choice, Richard Murphy, professor of accounting practice at Sheffield University, uh, who so excellently and eloquently described the crisis in local government and council, Bill Revens, leader of Somerset Council, who gave us his personal experience of a council which is in financial strain and has had to, uh, has had to declare an emergency in essence. Um, over their funding uh, thank you so much for listening uh, you can go back and listen to all of our shows are uh, on podcasting platforms on apple on spotify and on um on android please do give a listen uh, i think over the the, the the christmas and winter break we had some of our best of shows do go back and listen to those we've 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 Uh, amalgamated some of the best bits that we've had over the last 12 months you can also follow us on all social media platforms that's Fubar radio on x formerly known as twitter and politics uncensored you can also find us on instagram and tiktok i can be found at ali milani uk i hope to see you all next week as we continue to explore some of the key issues facing our politics ahead of a general election i've been ali milani this has been politics uncensored salams